Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second in our series of podcasts from the Reproduction, Sexualities and Sexual Health Research Group at the Open University here in the UK. Um, my name is Peter Kyo. I'm a professor of health and society at the Open University. And today our key area is um, reproductive and sexual health services for trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming um, communities and populations. And um, this is obviously an incredibly um, important and increasingly important question, um, both in terms of trans communities themselves, but also in terms of sexual and reproductive health services and how we think about those services and indeed how we think about sexual and reproductive health more generally. Um, there are real great opportunities to rethink that. We have two wonderful speakers with us, um, our participants with us uh, today. Anastasia Thompson is a medical doctor and author and activist based in South Africa. And she has a strong record in upholding the human rights for LGBTQIA plus communities and individuals, and indeed in expanding healthcare and access to healthcare for minority groups. She's a renowned public speaker and educator working with groups in South Africa, across Africa and globally. And she recently led the process to producing and publishing the South African guidance for um, gender affirming um, healthcare. And then to move on to Diana Moreno, who's our second speaker today. She's a lawyer who is currently director of advocacy at Pro Familia in Colombia. And Diana has worked for human rights and sexual reproductive health rights at various organizations, both in Colombia and internationally, and has participated in national and regional strategic litigation activities related to women and LGBTI health and rights. She's also a researcher and a professor on issues of gender, human rights and armed conflicts. So I'm really delighted to welcome you both uh, to this seminar today. Hi there. Um, and I thought it would be good if we could just kind of start off, I mean, I know I've given you a little bit of an introduction, but perhaps just for you to introduce yourselves. Can I go to Diana, first of all, just to, to, to welcome you in? Sure. So, um, hello to everybody. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I am a lawyer uh, and I come from Pro Familia, that is a uh, um, a member association of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. I, I've been working in sexual and reproductive rights throughout my whole life. I think that has to be with how revolutionary gender knowledge and sexual and, reprodu sexual and reproductive rights knowledge has been for me as a queer woman as a person who loves other queer people, uh, both romantically and non-romantically in many scenarios, and the importance that uh, queer people have for me in my life, but also um, because I politically believe that um, being queer and being trans does represent um, a new way of thinking about how we relate socially, how we relate in health spaces, how we relate in social spaces, um, in a way as a show of everything that is possible and diverse in the way humanity is expressed. So for me, that's how I ended up working on LGBT and trans rights. And that's what motivates me every day. Great response, Diana. Thanks so much. And so welcome today. Anastasia, can I, can I, um, come to you now, please. Yeah, um, I I I got working in this space completely by accident. <laughs> um, it's kind of a, a famous quote of mine earlier in life to say that I'm I'm not an activist. Um, I just kind of want to live my life, and I sort of had to have that moment of reflection one day when I looked in the mirror and I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not feeling anyone. I actually am an activist and it sort of happened while I wasn't looking. And, you know, again, I think it's just part of being in a marginalized community and having that experience. And this is, I, you know, when it comes to, to queer folk, like, especially nowadays we have this concept of of chosen family and you know it, your community becomes your family and 
you become fiercely protective over them. And, you know, I, I realized when I was trying to get access to my own healthcare, I experienced firsthand just a fraction of the trauma that other people experience in going and dealing with the medical industrial complex when they're different. And I, I, I had made a, a conscious decision. I mean, I was qualified as a medical doctor and I was looking to get on hormones and I made such a conscious decision not to self-medicate, not that I'd been taught how to do it, you know, I mean, in those days we did, we, I teach medical students now that I would have, I wouldn't have even known where to look it up, but I made the decision that I wasn't going to do it. I was going to be responsible. I was going to put my trust and my care and my health in the hands of the experts, which I did. And I just got burned. And I thought if I go through this with my white skin and my medical degree, and my access to healthcare in the private sector, I thought, what happens to every other trans person? And I started, not even intentionally, but I started collecting these horrible anecdotes and stories of what had happened to people and the kind of trauma that they'd endured. And it was mostly trans folk, but it was also just queer folk of every description. And then I started realizing that people are... are you know, when they come out, they're starting to see me as just some kind of, some kind of mentor or some kind of guardian. And I became so fiercely protective of all of the, the, the little trans folk around me. You know, I say little, I don't mean any, any diminution by that. I mean, people who, you know, have, have found the courage to come out and to reach out and who are still to some other degree inexperienced in navigating these spaces as an openly trans person. Um, and, and from there, I just thought like, I have to, I have to figure out a way to use all of my skills and all of my training and all of my trauma to inform something good. And yeah, it just, it kind of happened that being at this very rare, still still a very rare intersection, particularly in South Africa, being both a doctor and a trans woman and someone who's various other shades of, of the alphabet soup, I felt like I I just felt like it was the only thing to do. Never mind the right thing to do, just the only thing to do. Sorry, very long-winded answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna be quiet. No, I think that's a very common experience. Uh, exactly the kind of that it's the only thing to do. This is the kind of necessity of activism um, that draws us in. It's not really, really a choice. Um, and thank you so much for those those answers. They're, they're, they're very inspiring. I think what we, we the focus of today's seminar really is about sexual and reproductive health. Um, but I'd like to open up first with thinking about reproductive health. And you know, we 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 tend to see the kind of um, issues there as regards um, trans trans populations as you know, um, fertility preservation, for example, or access to abortion, or indeed, you know, contraception and the interaction with treatments or the interactions with hormones, those kind of kind of red button issues. But I'd like to ask you to think about them or talk about them also in relation to what they tell us about, um, I guess, attitudes within and about trans people. So stuff about trans parenting, uh, stuff about trans fertility, um, stuff about um, um, trans people's knowledge about their bodies and how, how that interacts with their treatments. Um, so yeah, so maybe start to think about, first of all, things around um, trans fertility and, 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 and contraception and abortion. Any, any kind of um, openers pretend there, I guess? Sure, I'll just uh, jump in with some ideas. Um... In Pro Familia, we have been working on creating a program in order to provide sexual and reproductive rights services to trans people. And uh, we have built that throughout uh, co-participatory research together with trans organizations to identify the needs that trans people have around specifically sexual and reproductive rights health. Um, 
And I must say what you were saying at the beginning, Peter, that is that in a way, many of the barriers and may, many of the problems that trans people face when trying to access sexual and reproductive health are directly connected to the barriers that they will face when trying to receive any sort of health care uh, in general, um, at least in Colombia. So they will talk about, uh, um, for example, discrimination and the stigma or non-recognition of their identities when they try to access the services, reason by which they will try to, in many ways, try to take care uh, uh, of themselves outside of the health system, uh, trying to prevent of being discriminated or violated against. Uh, we would find um, um, a lot of lack of knowledge within health professionals around uh, how to both treat respectfully trans patients, but also get to know uh, technical issues around the needs of trans people when it comes to, for example, contraception, fertility, or others. And then there is something very specific about reproductive health that uh, um, trans folks have reported that is mainly like this um, unrecognition of the possibility of trans people of living and taking reproductive decisions, um, especially on what regards to being able to be parents. Um, so, um, it's interesting because I've heard here in Colombia, for example, of trans men who say, when I used to identify as a woman and I wanted to undergo, uh, for example, uh, um, surgical sterilization, um, when I when I tried to do that as a woman, I would face a lot of problems. People will like... Uh, uh, doctors would say I was too young or that I haven't thought of this decision long enough, that I had to think more about it. But now that I'm transitioning, the first thing they ask me when I come for any sort of medical service is whether I have had a hysterectomy yet or not. So um, there is, of course, this idea that trans people just as other people who have considered undesired by medicine throughout history should not uh, reproduce. And in the medical practice, that turns out into lack of providing services in general uh, around uh, reproductive decisions. Uh, of course, that lack of knowledge, but also even sometimes the pressure out of forced contraception or forced sterilizations trying to forbid the possibility of trans people to form families and to and to reproduce. Thank you. I mean, I think it says so much about what, um, you know, the kind of, I guess, both the pronatalism around um, kind of cis women's health, I suppose, but also, yeah, precisely the kind of, the, the kind of changes in policy and attitude um, around trans health. Anastasia, do you have any particular perspective that you wanted to add there? It's so, it's so heavily policed, the, the right to reproduce and the right not to reproduce. You know, we stop people from accessing gender affirmation because what if at some point in the future you do want children? We have to protect you from that. And, you know, there's still some countries in the world where without undergoing irreversible surgical sterilization you can't update gender markers um so there there is this and we know how contraception without agency or sterilization without agency has been leveled against all kinds of marginalized groups whether it's on the basis of um intelligence or disabilities or all kinds of horrible horrible things um so I, I I really want to echo those sentiments. And then the other thing is just, and I, I, I always take issue with this in healthcare, is that we 
we somehow have to continue to frame and conceptualize everything through a lens that is incontrovertibly cis sexist and heteronormative and you know when we see two women in a relationship like raising a child we have to there's some part of us that still wants to ask like which one is the dad and which one is the mom and and it doesn't work like that when we see trans people we have to we we almost assume we take for granted that the best possible outcome for them is to get their body to replicate or resemble as closely as possible in form if not in function the body of a cisgender person and so many times that's that's not what gender affirmation is about it's not about making you some kind of second grade replica of a cis body it's about making you the the best version of of your trans body and the one that you're the most comfortable in and the one that works for you and you know to the extent that we disregard people's feelings when it comes to surgery and complications and whatever you know if we see a, a, a bottom surgery the purpose of which in an assigned male at birth patient is just to create an orifice that can be penetrated like we're so missing the boat no one asked you what you want out of it what what are your experience expectations in terms of pleasure and sensation and function and neurological um, um, integrity and so on. So I, I, I really don't like that when it comes to sexual health and reproductive health, which again, we only have half of the conversation because we see people as either vessels to carry a pregnancy or vessels to create a pregnancy. And then we see the STI side of things. And that's, we limit our focus just to those two. Anything outside of that, whatever sexual or reproductive experience outside of that, we don't talk about. And, you know, we we police these reproductive rights because we still think people are deviant and whatever it is. But it's all done. We try and, and shoehorn all of this into boxes that we already understand. So we see trans women and now we think all right well do we apply the logic of msm and you know we're, we're trying to to cram it into something that doesn't fit trans women are not msm can't treat them as such doesn't work like that um can't conceptualize the ideas of fertility and reproduction and contraception in the same way as you would for cisgender folks so we have that that discussion about preserving reproductive capacity before starting on on affirmation whether it's medical or surgical but the conversation it's it's so limited in scope and it just doesn't it just doesn't address all of the needs and i think that's the problem i think it's it's because you're always you're always going to alienate folk when you're trying to force them into compartments into which they don't fit and until we start to expand our understanding of what reproductive health means in this particular group and what sexual health means in this particular group and we stop trying to to fit everything into terms that we already understand because of our conditioning um i, I think that's going to be the key and i don't have answers but it is like that's the platform from which i want to do the majority of my thinking i i think as ever i think you're right to say that you don't have answers but i think as ever trans experiences raise questions and, and pose questions to um, all these different categories, like the MSM one is a classic, you know, it's an epidemiological category, it, it emerged out of HIV, and absolutely, it does not speak to the experiences or the identities of trans women, and yet, it's a very rigid epidemiological category, similarly with notions of reproductive health as the capacity to reproduce, um, and kind of very little else. Um, it, it, it is often the case that these questions are, are, are begged, are thrown into high relief by trans experiences. You touched on something, Anastasia, about um, the sexual reproductive health being about our reproductive capacity and indeed not getting diseases. But turning that on its head, uh, pleasure-based approaches to reproductive and sexual health, I mean, these are marginal I mean, I think that, that reproductive health practitioners do talk about pleasure-based approaches, but actually in real life, they're very, very marginal discourses and practices, both in terms of promoters and clinicians. Again, what do you think, for example, within a trans context would 
a pleasure-based approach to sexual and reproductive health look like? What's what is what is pleasure? What would it look like? Any thoughts? Wow. Um, yeah, I I the mind just boggles when you start to because we're so threatened by it. We're so threatened by the thought of like a trans person being comfortable with their body or their genitalia or experiencing sexual pleasure that we we start to call into question the validity of their lived experience i mean how like how gross is that it's it's shameful and i i mean i think it's a very exciting kind of feel to start talking about because there's been no work done and there's so much scope for all of the the researchers and the scientists and the data collectors amongst us like we can have a field day with this we can start to define our own terms and new experiences and ideas that have never been conceptualized before and i i, I really do I, I i think it is a field full of promise and opportunity and i think people are like blazing the and you know and and don't get me wrong i mean trans people have been out there like low-key undercover enjoying their bodies for decades they just had the good sense not to tell their doctors about it because they knew that we'd try and take those bodies away from them if they did um so a lot of this just hasn't been documented and it's been taboo to speak about it and i think i'm kind of very excited to see as we get better at having these conversations kind of where it goes and again i think it's just about having an open mind when it comes to those discussions and and trying to realize like there's just so much internalized baggage and internalized transphobia and medicalized transphobia and so on um but i think if we can break away from that and actually bring ourselves to listen and to learn um i think we could learn a lot about about sexuality and sexual pleasure in general like i think there's so many parts and you know i'm not saying like let's open the pandora's box of just turn all of the the queer and diverse folk into um lab rats but i really think that we could we could unlock so much exciting information and knowledge um if we do it collaboratively if we actually start empowering people with the lived experience um to do their own research i mean we've been doing it for for generations we've been our own research subjects and our own scientists um and i think that if we if we bring that into the mainstream and we start to carve out space for these folk in the professions that's going to be that's going to be the game changer i think it's so interesting what uh anastasia is saying about the possibilities of um you know pleasure is the blind spot of uh when it comes to sexual and reproductive health anyhow <laughs> like there's so so few of a conversation and a focus around health provision for the possibility of people to be able to experience joy in their lives throughout um the sexual reproductive decisions that they make and how as health actors we are supporters of that process of that joy um i i don't know what anastasia thinks about it but i i saw this year in in one of of these sex therapists in the us instagram account i think it was peer sex therapy uh around the idea of talking of gender euphoria as an opposite of gender dysphoria understanding not just for trans people but for for all of us how exploring our gender identity and expression should bring us pleasure should bring us joy and how we can be supported throughout that process uh and i think this this sort of uh, uh change of narratives around what what uh what a service provider does is something that we should be implemented more in our conversations of um say uh um bringing queerness towards the 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 health system and there's something i want to show you everyone is the cover of a research we made in profamilia around um safe abortion for trans men and non-binary people 
Uh, it was an, explore an exploratory study that we made doing uh, surveys and also um, the reconstruction of life histories with trans people and non-binary people who uh, at certain point of their lives have wondered or, or desired to access abortion services. And the reason why I bring Discovered right now is because in it you'll find um, four different people. Uh, um, most of them uh, have in a way sort of a, um, a masculine display of their gender expression. And they are um, in a way hugging each other uh, uh, and they have sort of like a resting, resting, friendly, lovely environment and faces between them. Um, and for me, this cover was very interesting because it was about talking uh, about abortion in non-traditional ways. Um, first, non-traditional, because we don't usually think of men men figures or masculine representation of gender when we think about abortion. Um, but also because, because um, the way in which we talk about abortion is mostly negative um, and, uh, and dark. Uh, so being able to portray it as a way of care and as a way of love was very important for us. I think the third thing I'll say about this is something that Anastasia was um, uh, just highlighting and is that the people who are in this uh, cover are the members of a trans organization that works for abortion rights here in Colombia. And they are our co-researchers in, in this investigation. They participated in the creation of the protocol, in the creation, in the development of research methodologies, and of course, in the writing of conclusions, um, and of course, in, in the recognition of their authorship uh, in, in, in this research. Um, later on this year, Pro Familia, we helped publish another research that was about trans communitary care, like the alternatives that trans people have developed uh, due to the re rejection of the health system, what is it that they have created in terms of care? And uh, that uh, research was completely translated, was not even co-researched, but uh, we were mostly supporters into what uh, the trans researchers that come from grassroots organizations wanted to develop. And they are the total developers and authors of that research. So just to close here, um, I want to highlight that um, talking about pleasure uh, means revolution, making a revolution about how we think about sexual and reproductive care. Uh, and that does bring benefit for all. This also involves creating positive narratives around our reproductive and sexual decisions even those who we, that we don't traditionally link to positive ideas. And finally, um, the importance of what Anastasia was saying around letting trans people lead the investigation around their own needs and experiences and telling us what is it that we uh, need to adaptate and the possibilities that we could have as health providers in improving services around them. Thank you, uh, Diana. That sounds a, a, a fascinating research. And I, um, if you could put a link to it in the chat, I'm sure we can share it and share it indeed on our site. Please do. Uh, just to also remind everyone that um, if you do want to ask any questions, please put them in the uh, Q&A and, um, and we will read them out of the end. Thanks very much. And we can certainly share that. I mean, to really what you're both talking about really reminds me that there are histories of minoritized um, communities really reclaiming the medical sexual health or sexual and reproductive health agenda. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, feminist agendas in relation to contraception and abortion from decades and decades back, but also thinking about HIV and um, safer sex 
and the the whole idea that you know sex in an epidemic should be pleasurable and wonderful and indeed kind of queer notions that you know being sexually active as a queer person taking pleasure in your body as a queer person is an intrinsically transformative political act taking care of oneself indeed uh, of one's queer body is a, is a, is an intrinsic act but also how those way those kind of um those histories have have impacted on medical practice and sexual and reproductive um, medical practice and indeed that that there's definitely clearly a space um a major space for um the transformative the transformative potential of trans experience i think is 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 clearly there i want to um move on to ask you about the kind of what you think about the kind of futures of um clinical services for trans um, communities are. Um, what you think are the kind of emerging challenges um, and how, how, how those challenges might be responded to? I see the future as, I, I don't know, I, I have these kind of, I developed these catchphrases that I just love to throw around. And I, I mean, they, they have to count for something like, the concepts that I'm thinking of are we we speak for some time about the democratization of healthcare, um, but I think that when it comes to trans and gender diverse folk, like we can't democratize it until we first demilitarize it. Like the trans body needs to become a demilitarized zone, like just hands off, leave it to the people who own that that skin to determine what happens. Um, and I often wonder if the existing institutions really have the capacity to, to grow and change in the ways that are necessary in order to become holistic and progressive and inclusive. And, you know, I, I, I often, I get a lot of questions about how do we fit into this constraint or that constraint or whatever manner of doing things that has been done in whichever facility, public sector, private sector, whatever it is. And there's part of me that thinks that we're not gonna we're not gonna change a system that's set in its ways and that adheres to this power dynamic above all else because it's it's so much driven by this us versus them mentality. And you know you have to maintain that cognitive dissonance. You have to see queer folk and trans folk as somehow being less than, as being subhuman. So then you just sidestep this whole debate around human rights. You don't even have to talk about human rights if you're not talking about human beings. And I think that the the the, the tight shift, you know, we used to, five or 10 years ago, we were all talking about like concepts of tolerance and acceptance. And I mean, I hate the word tolerance, like tolerance is art, who, who are you to tolerate? Um, it's a value judgment to tolerate people who are different, you know, and we've moved towards like embracing diversity and inclusion and whatever. So just as that is evolving and changing that kind of discussion, I think it's going to be less about trying to get the old systems to account for us or to tolerate us. And it's going to be more about like, as I said earlier, kind of carving that space for people in the sciences, in the healthcare professions, because I, you know, and and this challenged so many of my colleagues in the in healthcare sciences and in in the clinical sciences, was to make peace with the fact, and I think many of them have still not done it, <clears throat> that there are queer and trans health professionals amongst us. Like they're here, just because I'm a doctor, it didn't stop me from being trans, it didn't save me from being trans. I'm still trans, I'm a doctor. Like it can coexist and it challenges that notion, it challenges that superiority, it challenges that cognitive dissonance, it challenges all of the classism that goes along with it. And I think that as critical mass is achieved, so, you know, Diana, you and I probably think that we're like, fighting into the wind and no one sees what we do and no one hears what we do and whatever it is but like it makes a difference because there's someone out there who's still in the closet or there's someone out there who's still studying and you know who's seeing this representation 
And for every person who's, who sees that representation, they themselves become the representation for others and it gains mass and it gains momentum. And, you know, it means that eventually, like eventually we're going to outnumber the straight folk in uh, the clinical sciences because, you know, our, our, our minds are just better geared to it, our social experiences, our concomitant often coexists with neurodivergence. Like all of these is just the perfect storm for some massive rethink in the way that that clinical services are conceived and rendered. Um, and I don't know when it's going to come, you know, so it's kind of, I feel like we're on the cusp of something big. And I think in the meanwhile, like we celebrate the small gains, we look for the, the advances, like we published guidelines in South Africa it was a huge, huge, huge step forward. Um, I fully expect those guidelines to five or 10 years from now, someone's going to pick up that document and laugh at the fact that it was necessary because we're going to be talking about gender affirmation in every med school and it's no longer going to, but it, you know, we, we, we have to keep fighting the good fight until then. So in part, I think it's because people out there are doing the work and shaping the future. And in part, I just think it's the natural progression with time. And of course, being aware that there are, you know, there are very strong rising social movements um, that are hugely conservative, hugely right-wing. You know, I'm not saying that we're out of the woods and I'm not saying that time is all it takes. We have to be vigilant and we have to do the work and we have to safeguard our communities. But I think as we start to make more voices heard in this space um, and we empower people to, again, do their own research, produce their own guidelines, um, have agency over their, their sexual and reproductive destiny, and kind of eliminate this this huge conflict over the trans body. I think some of these problems are going to sort themselves out. Um, I think Anastasia gave us the the big broad look at how the system works and the the main challenges in a more structural way. I see that in the question box we have one related to like a small scale, a small scale uh, changes that clinicians could do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that. Um, and I'll say one of the most simple adjustments that a clinician could do is ask people how they wanna be named. <laughs> uh, every patient you have, <laughs> not just those who you, believe that you can identify our trends because you actually don't know <laughs> who is trans and who isn't. <laughs> and there are also other sort of naming opportunities uh, or naming necessities that people that are cisgender do have as well. Uh, but ask everyone, hi, how are you? Welcome. How would you like me to name you? Uh, my name is Bla, my pronouns are Bla, and respect the name and pronouns that they give you. One, one thing that is very interesting that I know it's a challenge for providers is that many times our health systems, information or data systems are a structure to only recognize legal names. Um, so it's a challenge for, for those who are providing services to understand how they can relate to uh, uh, the name the person is identifying with. So for example, in Colombia, we have that dilemma. And what we do is that we did a small modification within our medical records so that we could have both variables, uh, how you want to be named and your legal name. Um, in, in that way, we could uh, push uh, whatever authorizations for payments or other requirements that the system might need uh, can use the legal name, but you would always recognize the person by their identity name throughout the service. And the, uh, the if, if you are just a provider that does not have any sort of influence in the data system of your um, organization or, or health center, you can mainly just ask the patient and use that name. 
But if you do have certain sort of um, influence on the data system, please be aware that you can actually change it in the medical records in a way that would allow not just for the for everyone in the chain of attention to be able to recognize that name, and you would just have to ask it one time at the entry point at the at the main first contact. Um, there is a huge work that we should do in getting to know more about stereotypes around trans people and how we sometimes show it in our in our service provision, like uh, asking about people's genitalia when they're coming for a headache <laughs> or you know doing all those sort of impertinent questions around a people's body or transition when it's not really clinical clinically relevant and depending on your uh, speciality or area of expertise see whether there are certain modifications that you'll need to do in order to provide a better care so Peter was talking about two of them in terms of technical understanding one of it being around fertility understanding that there are some uh, hormonal procedures that might put at risk the possibility or might lower significantly the possibility of being able to reproduce in the future. So how, how we make sure that trans folks do know that that is a risk that they might face and whether they wanna take certain decisions around either their hormone therapy or their fertility on time in order to be able to uh, keep the possibility of reproducing the future, if that's what they wish. And in contraception, um, what we identified actually in the research that I just showed you is that um, there is uh, less knowledge about, at least in Colombia, there is less knowledge about contraception methods for trans folks and non-binary people. There is less knowledge for them than there is for uh, cisgender people. And there is a lot of confusion around whether maybe just taking, for example, testosterone might protect you from pregnancy, for which it might be that many people who do not want a pregnancy are not using contraceptive methods. And then uh, we need to know a little bit more about the relationship between the hormones that contraceptive methods have and um, the hormone uh, therapy uh, um, reassignment or reaffirmation for which unfortunately we don't have enough research. If you are in a university, please do more research and do it being translated, just Anastasia was saying. <laughs> uh, um, but but uh, what is understood is, is better to recommend um, non-hormonal um, contraception methods for many folks who do want to continue their hormone treatment. Abortion is mainly the same when it comes to how the procedures are made, the level of pills or medicaments that you provide or the techniques, but it's not the same when it comes to the support. Um, many folks will have questions around how pregnancy makes them feel under transit. Many of our infrastructure around abortion services is created mainly for cisgender women. Uh, colors, the way we're used to treat patients, the way we used to name them. So how we can transform it in a way that it might be more gender neutral inclusive or, or, or transmen inclusive. And I will um, uh, finally like to say two, two last things on general recommendations. One around bathrooms, <laughs> having gender neutral bathrooms in your facilities, which is very easy. People are, oh my God, this is so scary. Now we have to turn off and rebuild the whole clinic. But just um, remember, it is highly probable that the bathroom that you have in your house is gender neutral. <laughs> so that's all you need. <laughs> that's all you need. <laughs> so you are probably gonna be able to adapt what you need for having gender neutral bathrooms in your clinics. Uh, and finally, within our health systems, 
there are many ways in which the coding of, of what we treat and the procedures are also linked by gender. So many times our health systems don't understand that there is a man coming for a cytology or a woman coming for a vasectomy. And that just blows the brain out of the system, both in terms of people, human resources, but also just literally the administrative data that allows for that to happen. Mm. Even more when we talk about non-binary people. So we need to push for being able to changing those gender codifications for opening the different uh, service provision. But until we, until we are able to reach that, what clinicians can do is that they can treat the person the whole time with the gender and name and identification that they have according to their gender experience, and then trick the system, filling in the spaces that they need in order for people to actually receive services. Why? Because in many places in the world, we see that, for example, where trans men go for a cytology, they are denied the whole service because it is the system does not understand that a man can have that service, right? So please adequate your ways into actually allowing people having access to healthcare. Uh, And that's something that a, a clinician can do. That's, I mean, I think you speak to so many different points that are actually relevant in the UK as well, in terms of record keeping, in terms of gender markers, in terms of the appropriateness of services or the kind of the degendering uh, specifically of, of a lot of uh, sexual health services. Anastasia, have you got any thoughts on that question? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm going to echo a lot of what's already been said. You know, I'm, I'm moved into our little practice, which I'm now running. Um, but I moved in here three and a bit years ago. And, you know, I was like, we've got to overhaul the intake forms. And there was a little bit of pushback, you know, because I was like, we need to ask people pronouns. And there was the sentiment of, well, won't we upset the little old ladies who, you know, won't they get offended? <clears throat> but we did it. <clears throat> um, we didn't put the word pronoun on our form, but we said, how should we address you? And we've got we've got boxes for she, her, he, him, they, them. And then we say something else and we leave, I know, believe it or not, we leave a blank space and the world didn't end. And the little old ladies didn't get upset. No one got confused. Um, We asked people what name they prefer us to use. Um, And and I have all kinds of people filling in that field. Like I have people filling in nicknames or middle names or whatever. So, you know, we don't, we always have this, this thing of like, if we make a space more accessible to the diverse, won't we be won't we be alienating like everyone else? No, you don't. You make them more comfortable as well. So, you know, and I've I've had so much feedback saying just like, you know, I feel seen or I feel valid or forms never asked me that, or, you know, even from people outside of the community to say, oh, it's so progressive. Um, we don't ask, we don't collect information about we don't have a box for sex or gender because the metrics that we use for that make no sense. You're going to tick a box that says M or F and it's going to tell me what, not what organs you have, not what cancers you're at risk for, not, it's not going to give me any information. The kind of clinical information I want, I have to, I have to elicit from you in a a sensitive conversation with you on a one-on-one basis. So we don't collect useless data that doesn't really serve a purpose. We don't ask questions for the sake of just being invasive or satisfying our curiosity. Um, And and things have worked out pretty well here. I mean, in addition to that, and in addition to the discussion around the restrooms and whatever else, um, we just signal to people that this is kind of a safe space. You know, we we put the words LGBTQIA plus friendly on our website, on our Google listing. Um, You know, I've got, I've got my, my, I sit here at my desk with my three flags sitting on the desk. Um, you know, and I, I realize that I'm privileged that I can actually do this, and not be jeopardizing my own sense of security or safety, but I do it. Um, we we try and, and create that representation um, and make this a safe space that people can can 
connect with things and actually feel like they're like they're comfortable and that they can be open and honest. I mean, you know, I think that the new professionalism, because we we when I went to med school, it was all like white coats and ties and separate, you know, never show emotion. And I've kind of decided that at least for myself, the new brand of professionalism for the day and age in which we live um, is to to bring your whole self to the workplace and to the clinical space um, and to be that that representation and to be as open and honest as possible um, and to to not try and I figure if we as clinicians keep dehumanizing ourselves, how do you expect us ever not to dehumanize the people that we're treating? You can't. So I, I, I really think that it's, for me, it's just been about like, not just the liberation of being all of that I am um, morning to night, even in the workplace, but I think it's made a difference. I think patients pick up on that and, you know, we can teach you institutional policy. We can codify it in a document um, but I think that there's just a, a je ne sais quoi that comes through when you start putting people in the space and you start celebrating their identity that, you know, all of it, and the forms are wonderful and the restrooms are wonderful. We should have all of it. Um, but there's just something else special that happens when you start celebrating people instead of uh, suppressing them. And that energy cannot be denied. And it, it, it makes a huge difference. So that's the only thing that I'm going to add on to the already incredible suggestions that Diana made. So pulling, so drawing people into the space and celebrating them. I think that's a wonderful, um, that's actually a wonderful way to finish because I'm suddenly aware that we are just about out of time, folks. Um, thank you so much for both of you for agreeing to join us and speak with us and share these um, really remarkable insights and, you know, both your experiences as um as practitioners, as community members, as researchers, as clinicians. Um, and, you know, this uh, one of our major aims here is to try and draw together all of these various diverse strands into conversation. So I think this has been um, really, really beneficial for all of us. Um, and also just to say that our next seminar, which will also be a kind of podcast conversation seminar on HIV and digital health, is scheduled for the 25th of January, 2023. So once again, just to thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Anastasia. Thank you, Diana. And just to say, have a great day and bye-bye. Thank you, Peter. Thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, what a wonderful conversation to have had. And thanks everyone.